This is Pastor James Guyo, and welcome to Berean Sovereign Grace Church in Westerville, Ohio. We are a Sovereign Grace teaching ministry, and you can visit our website, www.salvationinchristalone.com, to hear more of our messages, and also go to soundcloud.com and search for James Guyo. My last name is spelled G-U-Y-O, or you can search Berean Sovereign, just Berean Sovereign, and you will see our messages there also. May the Lord bless your hearing, and may he serve you for his sake, for Christ's sake, and for the sake of his gospel. And now to our gospel teaching. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are worthy of all glory and honor. We come before your holy throne to acknowledge who you are as our sovereign God and King, our Father who is holy, a Father who has decreed all things and works all things according to the counsel of his own will. We thank you, Lord, for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thank you for sending him as the covenant of your people, as the surety of the covenant to establish this marvelous covenant of grace in which we have been saved. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who reveals the things of Christ, who takes the things of Christ and reveals them to his people. And so, Lord, as we go into your scriptures this morning, we pray that the Holy Spirit will do his work of revealing the things of Christ to us, that we may know them, that we may worship you and be edified by them. We pray and we thank you, Lord, for the message that you recorded for us in the book of John. May you grant us understanding for the sake of Christ. We pray in his precious name. Amen. John 9, John 9, verse 1 to 5. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The word of the Lord. Actually, we won't even be able to work verses 4 and 5 until next week. We are going to be working the theology of the first three verses and expanding it to what God has taught and revealed about his glory and suffering. And so the title of our sermon is Suffering, the Gospel, and God's Glory. Suffering, the Gospel, and God's Glory. We have a lot of theology to talk about. And we are going to be in the Old Testament, in Romans, James, Hebrews, 1 Peter, the Corinthian letters, just to work out more understanding of the theology of suffering in the context of God's revelation of the gospel. And that means buckle up. <laughs> the man in John 9 was born blind. And the disciples thought it was because the parents had done something that they had done some sin 
maybe even some generational sin that brought the curse of blindness to their son. That the son was paying for the sins of his parents in some way or fashion. But Jesus comes and expands the boundaries of their theology and says, it was not this man or his parents that sinned, that caused this blindness. But it was for God's glory. And so Jesus removed human causation and said, no, it actually happened by God's hand that he may be glorified, that he may display his works in him. Now, a lot of theologies in the church would say God only took advantage of the blindness to glorify himself, but had nothing to do with it. God only saw an opportunity to glorify himself in a blindness that had nothing to do with him. If we are found to be talking like that, we are no more talking about the God of the Bible, but a God formed after man's image. It is God who caused the blindness for his glory. And that is Jesus' theology. And we have to be on the side of Jesus. And many people who profess to know God do not know of such a God. They have never heard of such a God who causes someone suffering just for his glory. And the problem is because people do not know that God is all about his glory first and foremost. God loves himself. And he loves his son. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is God's son. And together they are committed to do whatever it takes to display their glory. God is committed to do whatever it takes, everything that it takes to display his glory. And that's what he has done. And because God loves Jesus, he made a man to be born blind, that in time Jesus would come and heal the man that God may in Christ display his mercy towards the man. But also in the bigger picture of things to show us and teach us how salvation works. If you still remember the story of Lazarus in John 11. We are told that Jesus loved this family. He loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And yet he did not heal Lazarus when he was sick. Jesus could have remotely healed Lazarus if he wanted to. He already did that with that other woman, the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. He healed the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. Remotely. So why did Jesus not heal Lazarus whom he loved? Because Lazarus had to die for the glory of God. That the son of God may be glorified by raising Lazarus from the dead. But there's more. The miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead is the last miracle recorded in the book of John. That's the last miracle before 
the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so Lazarus was to die and resurrect. And afterwards, Jesus was also to die and resurrect. So Lazarus was preparing the platform for Jesus on death and resurrection. So Lazarus had to get sick and die for the glory of Christ. But in all these things, the glory of God does not come on the cheap end. It comes painfully to the objects that God uses to display his glory. It was painful for the blind man to be blind all his life. It was painful for the woman with the issue of blood to be bleeding for 12 years without relief whatsoever. It was painful for the demoniac at the Gadarenes to be sleeping outside and breaking chains and being tormented by the demons, but that Christ may come and heal him and glorify God and preach the gospel through him. It was painful for all those who were lame, who were withered and crooked to live the lives that they lived. But it was even more painful for Christ to be put on the cross and be judged for our sins, which sins he did not commit himself. But they were all raised to this very purpose by God himself for the purpose of preaching Jesus Christ and the gospel. Otherwise, without these stories, without these people, without these gospel stories, you and I would not have any hope at all. We would not have any hope outside the suffering of Christ. God gave us righteousness through the suffering of Christ. So you see, suffering did not just happen. It's part of the wisdom of God. Suffering is part of the wisdom of God. It was through the suffering of Christ that we are counted righteous before God. So what we see is suffering had significance beyond the people who were afflicted by it. So your suffering is not always for you. Christ did not suffer for himself, but for others. Christ's suffering was for your salvation and God's glory. And if we do not know that, we do not know the God of the Bible. We then have to say, Jesus was so lucky to just find some sick people. He was lucky to find Lazarus dead just when Jesus himself was close to being put on the cross. But no, we can't talk like that. This was all by God's appointment. The Samaritan woman was not lucky to meet with Jesus at the well in the heat of the day. It was all by divine appointment. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And so all suffering comes from the hand of God, but has different reasons and purposes with respect to us. But we need to understand the different reasons and the purpose that God uses suffering in our lives. Especially in the context of the life of the believer. In the context of the life of the believer. In the scriptures, we are taught different reasons for suffering. 
And as Christians, we have to have some understanding of this. But we have some very important theological point to say at the outset. For a Christian, suffering cannot be because they are paying for their sins. Why not? Because their sins were paid for in Christ. So you never suffer to pay for your sins. All sin, if it has to be atoned for to God's satisfaction, needs a perfect sacrifice. And you are not a perfect sacrifice for your own sins. So you will never suffer for your sins as a Christian. Otherwise, if that were the case, you will have to go to hell. The only time that you have to suffer for your sins will be if you go to hell. That's the only way you can make atonement for your sins. But even then, because you are not a perfect sacrifice, you will never be able to atone for your sins in hell. But God brings suffering to Christians for humbling purposes. To humble them. To rebuke them. To test their faith. And many other reasons. Which we shall see. Suffering is used by God for humbling his people. Will be our point number one. Suffering is used by God for humbling his people. Deuteronomy 8. Let's go to Deuteronomy 8. We're going to have a number of verses to look at. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 to 3 says, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. God says, he is the one who led his people through the wilderness for 40 years. He purposefully led them through the wilderness. It didn't need to take that long to get from Egypt to get to Canaan. It doesn't take 40 years. They could have made it in a few weeks. But God purposefully took them through the wilderness, through the waterless places, places with scorpions and serpents. For what reason? God says to humble them, to test them. God claims to have caused their hunger that he may teach them of the provision of heaven. See the theology of the gospel. That he may teach them of the provision of heaven manna. To teach them that they may not depend on themselves. God's people are not immune to walking in the wilderness. They are not immune to walking through the waterless places. To be beaten by scorpions and serpents. And to go through Periods of hunger and thirst. God says he does that to his people to humble them. And even the Lord Jesus Christ was also tested in the wilderness. And he quoted Deuteronomy 8 
verse 3 that we just read to the devil. So the test for God's people, the test given to God's people by God himself was so that they may learn to depend on him. That is, that man's life is not in the bread that they eat, not in the physical things, but in the spiritual. And that echoes Jesus' theology that a man's life does not depend on the abundance of his possessions. And Jesus will say, Seek ye the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Those are spiritual things. And these other things, which are the physical things, shall be added unto you. So humblings are performed by the hand of God that you may be reminded that your sufficiency is not in yourself, but in God. It does not matter what instrument he chooses to use. He uses scorpions, serpents, hunger, thirst. He uses everything that is at his disposal. But the most important thing for us to know and acknowledge is that it is God who does it. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 8 and we'll read verses 11 to 18. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your heads and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness he fed you manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. You hear that? Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and strength of my hand made me this worth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make worth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. What is God saying? He's saying, do not neglect such a great salvation. He's talking about salvation because the children of Israel had just been delivered by the mighty hand of God from slavery in Egypt, which is a type of our own deliverance from the slavery of sin. So this is a picture of salvation. God says, I delivered you from the bondage of slavery through the terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground, but I did not abandon you to yourself. I brought you water out of the rock. That is Christ. I brought you water out of the rock. That is Christ. That is salvation. And God is saying, I humbled 
and tested you for your good in the end. You said that. For your good in the end for your salvation. And I am the one who saved you. And so do not go on your hind legs and begin to exalt yourself saying, it is by my power and strength of my hand that made me saved. That's what he's saying. It is not by the strength or power of your hand that you were saved that made you rich. I made Jesus Lord and Savior. That's what God is denying. God is saying, you are saved by grace alone. That is a statement of God's grace. That I delivered you out of Egypt by grace alone. So when I have put you in the promised land, don't begin to think you got in there by the strength of your wisdom, by the strength of your own hand. So by his power alone, you were saved. That you may not boast and don't forget that. That's what God is saying. He's saying, don't forget that I delivered you by my power alone. And Apostle Paul would come and say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. See some theology? See Paul's confidence towards God was based on Christ and not on himself. It was on Christ and it was through Christ. And so those who claim to be able to choose Jesus and say they are sufficient in themselves to come to Christ are not telling the truth. They are saying they are sufficient in themselves without Christ. Because by their own power and by their will, they were able to come to him. And they have forgotten that their sufficiency is only from the Lord. So they need some humbling. They need some humbling. Job was tested by much great suffering. He lost his wealth, his children, and his health. And he surely was humbled by this very painful experience. But James 5 says, James 5, 11. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. The Lord displayed his grace, his compassion, his mercy towards Job, but he had to take him through those lands. For that purpose, that God may display his compassion and mercy towards Job. That he may teach Job that whatever Job was, was because of God's grace and nothing else. And to teach Job to trust the Lord in a real way. Job loved God. He feared God. But Job never had to trust him until his things had been touched. And many people have not yet been given situations where they are required to trust in the Lord. 
it is hard to trust in the Lord when things are falling apart. But if we do, if we do trust in the Lord, it is because it is he giving us the grace to continue trusting as Job did. Job was never going to fail. Why? Because God is the one who was behind it all. Job was not left to his own devices. God was still keeping the testimony of Job. Job could not say anything beyond what God intended for him to say. The devil could never overcome Job as to change Job's testimony. Why? Because Job was elect. Job was elect. He would never fail. His faith would never fail. But one cannot trust the Lord with things that they think they have strength to fix themselves. You cannot trust God with something that you think you have ability to keep or maintain by yourself. And so God gives us situations that are beyond our strength or our ability to fix. And we are going to hear a lot of this kind of theology from Apostle Paul This is a lot of Apostle Paul's theology on suffering. So besides humbling, God uses suffering for our improvement, for our edification, and for our being wind from the world. Being wind from the world. Suffering by persecution comes to God's people so as to cause them to hold tightly to Christ. The Hebrew Christians were going through persecutions because they had left Judaism for Christ. Judaism was more than a religion for a Jew. It was an economy and a cultural identity. And the Hebrew Christians had to lay aside all those things for Christ. And were being persecuted for laying them aside as apostates of Judaism. So life for them was not good. But the writer of Hebrews comes and says to them in exhortation. Hebrews 12, 4 to 12. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline, verse 7, that you endure God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. 
but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And so the sufferings that they were going through were by divine appointment to confirm their sonship to God in Christ and to make an improvement on their commitment to Christ. The suffering was to cut them off from their old way of life to the new way of life in Christ. The reprobates, the illegitimate children, are left in the warm embrace of their peace. They are left undisturbed because God says, if he doesn't discipline you, then you are not his children. You are illegitimate children. A father cannot be concerned about children who are not his children. So God says, when I bring suffering, it's a test. It's another sign to show you that you belong to me. But the illegitimate children are left in the warm embrace of their peace, of their security, and of their prosperity. But never God's children. He disturbs and pours his children out regularly like wine so that he can remove some drags from the bottom of their wine barrel. No one in their right senses ever irons wrinkled clothes with a cold iron. Nobody. You don't iron clothes, wrinkled clothes with a cold iron. They are foolish if they do that. You use a hot iron to iron wrinkled clothes. And God uses suffering as his hot iron to remove the wrinkles in us. To mortify the deeds of the flesh. But listen to this. No one ever uses a hot iron with the intention of burning their beautiful dress or pants. You don't turn on the iron to burn your clothes. You iron carefully at the proper heat setting. Cotton, wool, silk, easy care. Why? Because you love the dress and you want the dress to look good. And so God irons his children carefully and at the proper setting of suffering. Because he does not intend to destroy them, but to make them look beautiful because he loves them. See that? See the bigger? And that is why, verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Why? Because you are being ironed. (laughs) It's going to be sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And God says, this chastening, this disciplining is standard operating procedure For all those who come to Christ. That he may purge some worldliness out of them. It is for our good as God defines it. 
And the good is that it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. It causes you and I to cling tightly to Christ. So when you come to Christ, God says, expect some chastening. Things are actually going to get worse and not better in some of the circumstances of our lives. But be of good cheer. This sickness, like Lazarus, will not lead to death. It is not because God is mad at you. It's not because God is not pleased with you, but because he is pleased with you. So God chastens you because he loves you. Remember Job. Job suffered because God was proud of him and spoke well of him. And you may just be suffering because God is very pleased with you. Like Job. Have you considered my servant Becca? None like her. See, because you are righteous in Christ. Job was righteous because of Christ. Ecclesiastes 7.14 In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely, God has appointed the one as well as the other. So that man can find out nothing that will come after him. God is saying he has appointed both adversity and the good days that you may not be comfortable in yourself. Basically to say that you may not have sufficiency in yourself. Job 5.17 Job 5.17 Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. And the same Job we say in Job 23.14, Job 23.14 again says, this Job talking, for he performs what is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. God is going to perform all the sufferings that have been appointed for you, and many such things he has with him. See, it is God who brings the suffering and many such things as he has appointed for you and me. Why? Because it is God bringing these things to us so as to strengthen your testimony of Christ. And Pentecostals could be helped by this teaching. They need to understand that it is not the devil on the loose. God is the one who is running the show. So when you come to Christ, your faith still has to be tested sooner or later. All faith has to be tested sooner or later. Suffering is brought by God as a way of testing faith. God brings suffering to improve your trust in him and to refine your faith and to strengthen it. First Peter 1, 3-9. First Peter 1, 3-9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected, kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, hear that, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Peter says, The elect have been born again, not to a dead hope, but to a living hope. Everyone is born to something. The believer in Christ is born to a living hope. So in spite of your circumstances, you are living in a living hope. The unbeliever is the one born to a dead hope. And the believer is born to a living hope and an inheritance, which is imperishable and undefiled and does not rust, and is reserved in heaven and not on earth. Now that takes away this prosperity gospel nonsense. Because the apostle says, the inheritance of the believer is stored in heaven and not on earth. It's just not here. That's why, Sister Baker, your car has not come. It's not here. It's in heaven. Your car. Yeah, it's not here. It's not going to come. It's in heaven. It's stored in heaven. The inheritance is kept in heaven where it cannot be taken away from you. Peter says, God keeps the inheritance of the saints. And he also keeps the saints by his power through faith. And in time, he shall bring together the inheritance and the heirs together that none is lost. So the inheritance, which is salvation, is not lost. And the elect are not lost. But how? Because both are kept by God. The inheritance is kept by God and you are kept by God. And Apostle Peter then says, all trials are for a season and they have a reason. All trials are for a season and they have a reason. Even though now for a little while, even though now, for a little while, which means the trials are temporary, but are purposeful. Purposeful. And the trials are said to be various or manifold. And the Greek word that is translated various means of many colors. Many colors. That is variegated. Variegated. Variegated leaves have appearances 
of differently colored zones in the same leaf. And a lot of people use them for flowers because they look beautiful. Variegated means of many colors. And so the believer is said to go through trials of various, of variegated colors. And God is said to bring trials of various colors to prove and strengthen your faith. So you think you are out from this trouble and something shows up. (laughs) Something different, of a different color. So trials of various kinds are what God uses to test your faith and that is how he keeps you by faith. Trials are the gymnasium of faith, not yoga. (laughs) Not yoga, it's trials. God is constantly trying our faith by bringing trouble into our life. So the teaching that will come to Christ and all your troubles will be no more, and if they do come, is because of the devil or because you don't have sufficient faith are not true. It's God who actually purposes the trials. He brings them to you to improve your faith. So trouble is God's tool of keeping his people from stumbling and to keep them to himself. And that is why as soon as you get out from one trial, you get into another. And someone said, you are either getting out of trouble, are in trouble, or getting into trouble. Either one of them. You are getting out of trouble, you are in trouble, or you are getting in trouble. And the end of that is the proving of your faith. Your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is not going to put you in a literal furnace, like when metals are purified. He only uses it as a picture. But the goal of smelting metals is not to destroy them, but to make them pure and to impart to them better and higher properties that can only be had when they are pure. Oh, no, that's good. I used to do metal work. I used to do metal work. So I, I know quite a bit about purifying metals. The purpose of smelting metals. Because in the natural state, they are combined with all kinds of other junk. So the purpose of smelting is to isolate the pure metal. It is not to destroy the metal. When the metal has been made pure, it just has better properties. Iron that is not purified is not good for anything. Same as silver or copper. They have to be purified. And so a faith that has not been tested is good for nothing. It's good for nothing. Its purity and usefulness has not been realized. Purity and usefulness are squeezed out under intense heat or pressure. And so suffering is God's fairness for smelting the dross out of his people and to make them useful. Hear that? So he uses 
the multicolored trials as a furnace. And so he says in Proverbs 25.4, Proverbs 25.4, take away the dross from silver and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. Take away the dross from silver and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. The dross has to be removed from the silver that it can be made of good use by the silversmith. See that? The silversmith is a maker of fine ornaments. And he has to see during this time they would use the silver as a mirror to reflect their own image, and if they could see themselves clearly in the silver, then they knew the metal was pure. The metal was pure. So the silversmith has to see his face reflected clearly in the metal to test its fitness for making beautiful ornaments. And so are we like silver in the hands of Christ the smelter, and the silversmith. It's Christ who is both. He removes all the dross till he sees his face reflected in us. Remember, fire is for purification. It is for the removal of the dross. The fairness of affliction results in you looking toward Christ and looking like Christ being stemmed into the mold of Christ. And if you know anything about molds, the mold does not expand to fit you. You are the one who has to be poured and forced into the mold because the silversmith is shaping things according to the shape of the mold and Christ is the mold. And that is why it's painful. Christ is forcing you into his mold. So Peter will say, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor and the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so God uses trials to keep you looking to Christ. And this is why God did not remove the fiery serpents in Numbers 21 that were biting the people. The people came to Moses, if you still remember, and asked Moses to ask God to remove the fiery serpents. But God said, no, I'm not removing the fiery serpents. He left the fiery serpents but he gave them a solution to the bites. And so the believer has been given the solution to their sin, but God has not completely removed sin from us yet. Why? So that we may continue to look to Christ. James comes and says, in James 1, 2-4, James 1, 2-4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, consider or count it joy when you encounter various trials. Again, he uses the same Greek word of the multicolored trials. He uses the same language. Why? Why should I be joyful for trials? Because they are not random and they don't order themselves. They are not purposeless. But what are they for? For the testing, the proving, the smelting of your faith that produces endurance. Endurance is the end. That's the good end for which you are being tested. And this is metal work theology here. It's metal work theology. Remember I said metals are smelted to give them better properties, more strength. They are more malleable and can be beaten to shape without breaking when they are pure. When a metal is pure, it's easy to bend it into the shape that you want without breaking it. And they also conduct electricity better when they are pure. And so believers listen to God better when they are being purified and have been purified. And they are more useful to others this way too. We are more useful to other people. We edify people when our faith has been strengthened. And the apostle says here, the testing of your faith is for producing endurance. Endurance is also translated patience. Patience. But what does patience mean? The Greek word is hupomon. I hope I pronounced it right. But it's H-U-P-O-M-O-N-E. It's a word used to describe someone's character. It is the temper that does not succumb to anger, under suffering or provocation. is that character trait that does not succumb to anger, under suffering or provocation. And that word has a synonym. And the synonym is macrothamia. You don't have to remember that. But it means the self-restraint which does not hastily retaliate a wrong. The self-restraint, which does not hastily retaliate a wrong. So, patience means to bear a burden cheerfully. It means to bear a burden, to bear difficult circumstances of life without anger, without complaining. And this quality you do not possess naturally, Unless God has worked it in you through the means of suffering. It seems like that's what the apostles are saying. This quality is not worked in a person by reading theology books. But by experiencing real life trials in the direction of God. So if you're at home and you're trying to get your wife or husband to do some things and they never seem to do it. (laughs) And you get frustrated with them. Guess what? God is teaching you. To be patient. You are teaching the kids to do stuff and they never seem to want to do it. God is teaching you to be patient. And you find yourself 
in traffic, when you desperately need to make an appointment, guess what? God is teaching you to be patient. You just don't read about patience. Like, okay, look at me. I'm so patient. I've just been reading about patience. <laughs> it does not happen that way. It's God who has to teach you. But the end of that is that the believer is said to be perfect and complete, which means being mature, lacking nothing, content in Christ. Lacking nothing of the spiritual virtues in Christ. And that is the same exhortation made here by Apostle Paul as one of the benefits of justification. That because we know of our justification in Christ, we are able to bear tribulations that build character. But you are not weighed down by the tribulations because you know that these tribulations are not going to take away your justification. So the knowledge of your acceptance by God is what gives you strength to keep going under tribulations. Romans 5, verse 1 to 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, patience. Patience again, the same word. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. On the same note, the writer of Hebrews says, in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So the exhortation again, based on Christ. Christ endured the hostilities and also the shame of the cross. But he, because of the joy set before him. So the believer is being called to look to Christ in order to stand during the time of trials. And for the rest of our teaching, we are just going to be working Apostle Paul's understanding of the gospel and suffering. If we don't understand who God is, we can't bring a good understanding of suffering. We have to begin with God and his glory. Otherwise, we are going to be making up all kinds of useless theologies. The theology of the gospel of grace has God's glory as its motivation. In this gospel, God shows himself to be God and his creatures are reminded that they are nothing but fragile vessels. 
They are earthen vessels and nothing more. And God is not in need of an earthen vessel. However, he raises earthen vessels and uses them as instruments of his glory and to accomplish his work. Whenever God works, he has to get the glory. All of it. The vessel is never helping God in any way. Rather, it is God working through the vessel as an instrument to cause the vessel to will, to desire, and to do for his glory, for his good pleasure. The earthen vessel may water and plant, but the increase always comes from God. The credit for the results, the increase always comes from God. Why? Because men have no power to accomplish that which God alone does. And that which God alone does has to be recognized as coming from God alone. If we understand the God of the Bible, it is impossible to come up with a salvation that has man finishing a work that only God can accomplish. It's impossible. A work that will end up with God sharing his glory with his creatures does not exist. There's no such work. And so God makes instruments for doing his work that are not what people expect. God chooses people to serve, especially those who are so much deep in sin. They are the perfect vessels for God to display his glory because they have nothing to come and boast before God with. He puts his knowledge and understanding in people and places that are not expected to have it. But in each case, the instrument to remain useful in this regard has to remain weak. I'm building some theology to Apostle Paul's teaching. Weaknesses create an attitude of dependence. Sister Baker, do you understand that? Weaknesses create an attitude of dependence on another power. And all who come to God have to approach him on the basis of weakness. God never wants the instrument to forget that they are just an instrument. An instrument has no power in itself, but it is through it that the power of God is exerted. The X has no power in itself, but only has as much power as has been exerted by the wood of the X. Assyria thought they were the power when they were taking down nations like they were gathering abandoned eggs, they said. <laughs> but God comes and says, when you claim power, you are claiming glory. If you claim power, you are claiming glory. And God says, I will not allow that. And so he said this in Isaiah 10, 15. Is the ex to bust itself over the one who chops with it? Is the ex to bust over the one who chops with it? Is the soul to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it. Or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. In salvation, the gospel is salvation by grace alone 
in Christ alone through faith alone. Why? So that the soul will not exalt itself over the one who wills it. It is so that the ex will not boast over the one who chops with it. It is so that we will not share in the glory that is in the work of Christ. Salvation could never be any other way but by grace alone, in Christ alone. And that is why it is by faith alone. Because faith brings nothing to salvation other than that which God has given himself. And sinners are sinners because this makes them weak and powerless. God purposed sin to make us weak that his power may be shown in our salvation. And that is why the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes and not to the one who works. Only to the one who believes. You cannot have any gospel that has works. That's not God's gospel. Because it's contrary to who God is and the purpose for which he does things. The one who works has something to boast about, but not before God. But this doctrine, God does not just teach it in the classroom. He also applies it to the lives of his people. He will give them situations, health conditions, life circumstances that will continue to create weaknesses in them that they may continue to depend on his power. Not the government, not their paycheck, not their family, not their friends, but God. So he brings sickness and all kinds of infirmities to this very purpose. Let us hear if that is the theology of Apostle Paul. Second Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. My power achieves its purpose in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Apostle Paul is arguing against the so-called super apostles who had come into the Corinthian church, who were boasting in their visions. And Apostle Paul comes and counters them, and he says to the Corinthian people, oh, guess what? I also had some great revelations. I was caught up into paradise and had inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. But then the apostle says, and because of these revelations, God gave him a messenger of Satan to buffet him, that is, to subdue him. Why? To keep him from exalting himself. Why? So that the power of his ministry would rest not on the strength of his revelations, 
but of God who was working in him. And so he would say in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 to 5, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. So Paul asked the Lord to remove the messenger of Satan, but the Lord said no. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. The Lord said, I have given you this weakness that you did not have before as a bridal to keep you weak because weakness is the condition of you experiencing my power. Weakness is the condition of you experiencing the power of Christ. If there is no weakness, then the power of Christ cannot be felt. His power is only perfected in weakness. And that is why his afflictions, trials and struggles never stopped. And Apostle Paul would come and say, Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties, diverse trials, multicolored trials are caused. You see, those are all kinds of trials. Weaknesses, insults, distresses, those are all multicolored trials are caused by God to keep his people weak that he may show his power in the weakened vessel. So we are a small group by God's doing, that keeps us weak, but very powerful. We would want to have 100 people, but we may start to have our power in the numbers and not the power that comes through Christ. So God purposes for us to remain for now as we are, that the power of our ministry does not come from us, but from him. So you see, you give increase to what we are doing for his sake. Because his power is perfected in weakness. And this theology was taught to the children of Israel also when they were being beaten by the fire serpents. I think I already talked to that. Right? God did not remove the serpents. Apostle Paul asked the Lord to remove the messenger of Satan. The Lord says, no, I'm not removing it. My grace is sufficient for you even among the serpents. His power is made strong when you have serpents biting you. His power is made strong when you are chilling at the beach with all your ducks in a row. No. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> His power is made perfect in weakness. And so weakness is by God to keep you and I looking to Christ. God uses your sin to humble you in whatever way 
he determines to cause us to keep looking at the raised Christ. And that is why whatever solution you think you have found to tame your life always has its own snares waiting for you. It is God who puts them there. God does not want you to trust in yourself. Self-confidence is self-sufficiency, and that is pride, and that is not good. And so he will bring sufferings again to teach you not to depend on yourself. Here, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 11. Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abandoned, abandoned through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Listen to verse 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and who deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us, you also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. The Apostle Paul said they had a great affliction that burdened them excessively beyond their strength, beyond their ability to bear the burden, beyond their resources to absorb the suffering. So that in his words, they despaired of life itself. They thought they were dying. They had the sentence of death on them. But why, Paul? Why? Paul says, so that we would not trust in ourselves. That they may be reminded of their commonness. That they were not heroic figures. That they were fragile earthen vessels. But trust in who? Trust in God who raises the dead. So who brought the suffering, Paul? The devil? No. It is God that he may weaken them so that whatever they did and achieved in their ministry was solely due to the power of God. And this God has not changed, my brothers and sisters. He will put you in the hospital. He will mess up marriages and mess up whatever he wants that his power may be seen and that his people may learn to trust in him alone. So God puts the treasure of his gospel to be preached by earthen vessels. An earthen vessel has not much that you can do with it. It is fragile. 
and has to be carried around to be useful. And so God puts his truth, his gospel in people that many do not expect to have it. They are not even qualified to preach it according to men's standards. They did not go to seminary. He just showed up. God just showed up and said, guess what? You're going to preach my gospel. (laughs) For what reason? 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 12. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We're almost done. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. The vessel is chosen and fitted in a way that causes people to stumble over the choice of the vessel. The gospel is a foolish message because you don't find many mighty and noble people believing the gospel. I'll talk for myself. I know that as soon as I open my mouth, people will have their prejudices and opinions, and some will not even listen. They will just play my message for one minute, like, okay, I'm not going to listen. But that is exactly what God intends by it. This is so that only the approved will listen. But even then, as earthen vessels. But Apostle Paul says, his sufferings never seem to destroy him. The sufferings never seem to destroy the people that are being afflicted. They continue to suffer, but they continue to exist. Verse 8, 10, 11, and 12 of 2 Corinthians 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. The apostle says, it seems he is always on the verge, on the edge with his trials. He says we are afflicted in every way, but not Christ. Yes, the afflictions come, but they do not destroy them. They get perplexed. They are not despairing. They are persecuted, but are not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. All these are designed to keep the earthen vessel in perpetual weakness that Christ's power may be made strong. So what is all that saying? It is saying a believer also suffers after coming to Christ. But the suffering is not misfortune. It's not because of lack of planning. It is designed by the Lord. It is measured and purposeful. It is given according to the measure of faith. It is given to test faith and to grow faith. Saving faith has to be tested. Abraham's faith was tested in the offering of Isaac. And the faith of all those in the faith hall of fame in Hebrews 11, had to be tested. Job's faith, the Lord Jesus Christ's faith, was tested. All faith has to be put in the smelting furnace, in the crucible, that it may be tested to see if it is genuine. But God does not put it to destroy the person, but to make them strong. So in conclusion, it seems like we have been lost, but we are not. (laughs) This is what we are saying. If you read the Bible, 
you see that all suffering comes from the hand of God. Suffering, like all things, is an instrument of God to bring weakness in his people. And weakness is necessary if God's power has to flow and accomplish its end in his people. Why? Because suffering empties you of you. It empties your cup of your own strength and leaves it empty for God to channel his power for his glory. And so the man born blind was born blind and raised that God may be glorified in him. Lazarus died that God may be glorified in him. Apostle Paul was buffeted by the messenger of Satan that Christ's power may be perfected in him. Apostle Paul could not speak well, was not an orator, that the power of his gospel ministry would not come from the fluence of his speech and his power of persuasion, but from the power of God. He was always suffering distresses that he may not trust in himself, but in God. And Peter said, suffering is God's smelting furnace to remove dross from our faith and strengthen it for this very purpose, to make our faith useful by looking always to Christ. It is for working in the virtues of Christ in his people, learning patience, character, endurance. And so suffering is a way that God uses to preserve his people. It's a preservative of God's people. And if you are a Christian, and none of these things have not happened and are not happening. Just wait a few more days. Wait a few more weeks. And wait a few more months. Something will happen. It is coming. So who sinned this man or his parents that he should suffer this way? That he should be born blind? Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that God may be glorified in him. Isaiah 48.10 says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction, in the furnace of misery. So do not manufacture problems. God is going to bring them. God will bring the real multicolored ones designed by him to accomplish his purpose. Psalm 66.10 for you, O oh God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your holy throne to worship you and thank you for you are kind to us. You have kept us by the work of Christ who redeemed us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the work that you are doing, even smelting us in the furnace, that our faith may be made strong. Lord, we pray and we thank you for all this understanding, all this teaching. And we just ask, Lord, that you give increase to it. Uh, to all those who are going to listen, may you give them understanding, Lord, for your sake. May you edify and exhort your people even by this teaching. Lord, we honor you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.